linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And before I introduce today's talk, I would first like to point you to a podcast and to a video trailer. The podcast is from the uh, Tink Tink Club, and it features our friend Diana Reed Slattery, who you heard a while back here in the salon in podcast number 424. It's a really interesting interview, and I'll link to it in today's program notes. And the video trailer is for an upcoming feature titled Transmutation, which is a feature documentary film about uprooting the experience of normality, something that uh, probably most psychonauts are familiar with. And uh, this film is being done by two of our longtime fellow saloners, Neil Kramer and Niles Heckman. So if you get a chance, uh, surf on over to our program notes, uh, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us, and uh, you'll find the link there. And my final announcement for today is uh, that there is now an effort underway to transcribe all of the talks of Terrence McKenna. As you uh, may not know, <laughs> on our program notes blog, there's a menu option that's titled Extras. And in addition to Gary Fisher's art, uh, some sections about a few of the elders and some old scientific papers, you'll find a number of transcripts of Terrence's talks that some of our fellow saloners have sent me. However, uh, we now have some exciting news about the transcripts of Terrence McKenna talks. A uh, concerted and organized effort is underway to put as many transcripts as possible in a single place. And appropriately, it's titled the Terrence McKenna Wiki and may be found at www, all one word here, terrencemckenna.wikispaces.com. And uh, there you're going to find instructions on how you can help. And you'll also find what uh, I guess are probably well over a 100 transcripts already there. And they're arranged by year, so it's uh, real easy to find what you're looking for. It's a really wonderful resource and well worth your time to check it out. And, uh, of course, I'll link to that in the program notes as well. So now let's uh, get to today's program, which is another talk by our fellow saloner, Bernardo Castro. If you've uh, been to our Program Notes blog and visited the page for podcast number 434, which is Bernardo's first podcast for the salon, you'll notice that it's received the most comments of any podcast in a long time. And my guess is that uh, today's talk, which Bernardo wrote and recorded specifically for the salon, is uh, also going to generate a lot of conversation. And I should let you know that originally I was going to play this talk on the last Monday of this month so as to coincide with the publication of his new book. Uh, and the book is titled Brief Peaks Beyond, Critical Essays on Metaphysics, Neuroscience, Free Will, Skepticism, and Culture. And uh, Bernardo had uh, sent me a preview copy, which I'm now about a third of the way through, so I can't uh, give you a complete uh, review of it myself. Uh, but what happened is the publisher moved the release date forward, and uh, so the book is now available. So uh, I decided to not wait until I finished reading the entire book before playing this talk for you. And while you won't get the full impact of his thinking with just this podcast, if you are interested at all in these topics, uh, you know, the simple questions like, uh, who am I, why am I here, what should I be doing, <laughs> you know the litany. Uh, well, those are the questions that we often find ways to not think about. 
But uh, should you be so inclined as to entertain these topics, then I think that uh, some of the metaphors and ideas in Bernardo's talk right now and further developed in his new book are uh, really going to be of great help to you and uh, definitely of interest. Uh, And so in the interest of uh, not disturbing your train of thought when we get to the end of this audio essay by Dr. Bernardo Castrup, I won't be adding my own commentary at the end today. My guess is that, uh, well, you're going to have a lot to think about without me adding my own comments. So let's join Bernardo now. We live in a culture that has come to adopt um, the worldview of materialism as its mainstream view. Materialism has now even come to be a kind of synonym with reason, with rationality, with empirical honesty. But what is materialism? What does it entail? Well, there are two key notions behind this worldview of materialism that I think we should look at critically uh, before just taking it for granted that, that materialism is, is, is the best uh, interpretation of facts and experiences that, that uh, has ever been. The first notion entailed by materialism is that reality, the physical world, matter and energy, exist fundamentally outside consciousness, independent of consciousness, that the entire universe would still go merrily on even if there were no conscious entities to observe it, to perceive it, to think about it. That's the first notion. And the second notion is that this matter and energy fundamentally outside consciousness, when they are arranged according to specific complex patterns, namely biological brains, they then generate consciousness. Now, Look at what an amazing abstraction this is. Conscious experience is the only carrier of reality any one of us can ever know. Um, Everything touched by the fingertip of knowledge, no matter how slightly, how subtly, is immediately brought into the fold of conscious awareness. You cannot know that which you aren't or has never been conscious of. Knowledge exists within consciousness. So to infer that reality is fundamentally outside consciousness is actually beyond knowledge. It's an abstraction. And worse yet, materialists take yet another amazing step of abstraction when they say that consciousness itself, which is the primary datum of reality, the only carrier of reality we can ever know, is generated by specific arrangements of this abstract matter and energy in this abstract world outside mind. So the mainstream worldview of our culture is very abstract. It's fundamentally beyond knowledge. It's highly metaphysical in a sense, in a strong sense. But that's not the only problem with it. The main problem with it is that it leaves some very important and fundamental questions unanswered. It leaves, for instance, uh, the origin of consciousness, the mechanisms behind consciousness, totally unanswered. Materialists appeal to this idea of uh, emergence to explain consciousness. They say that consciousness is the emergent property of biological brains. They would say that an individual neuron is just a machine, an unconscious little machine, a switch, if you will. 
completely unconscious, that there is nothing it is like to be an individual neuron. But if you put enough neurons together, then somehow, and they don't explain how because they're unable to, that's, that's the so-called hard problem of consciousness, somehow, when enough neurons are put together according to specific patterns, consciousness lights up. Suddenly, there is something it is like to be a brain, that being your inner life, my inner life. My inner life, it, it is supposedly what it feels like to be my brain. Now, this step of emergence, how do you come from unconscious individual neurons to a conscious brain, that step is left unexplained. They just give a name to it. They say, oh, it's emergence. But they're actually saying nothing by using this word. They are just labeling a fundamental unknown. They are giving a name to something they can't explain. And somehow, this is supposed to, to be enough. This is supposed to, to, to be enough to give us confidence uh, in their highly abstract worldview. So what I want to do now is to invite you um, to a little thought experiment. Um, a thought experiment uh, that would that would lead us to a, to a different worldview. And, and I would invite you to, to go along with me in this experiment and at the end to critically evaluate whether you think uh, this is reasonable and this makes any sense, and then to contemplate the implications with me. So I want to do this in five steps, and I'll take you through this uh, step by step. The first step is to separate what we know about the brain, namely the human brain, because it's the only one we know from within. We know what it's like to be a human brain. We don't know what it's like to be an insect's brain, for instance. We can, we, can, we can infer things about it, but we don't really know. To separate what we know from what we assume, what we speculate, what we infer. What we know about the human brain is that patterns of electrochemical activity in the brain correlate with or go with certain subjective experiences. For instance, if I, if I move my left arm uh, and I have the conscious awareness of that movement, the inner perception of that movement, uh, that will correlate with the activation of certain neurons in my brain. If I look at pictures of my loved ones and I am overwhelmed by the warm feelings of, loved, of love, um, those feelings will correlate to the activity of particular neurons, other particular neurons in my brain or regions of my brain, and so on and so forth. So certain patterns of electrochemical activity in the brain go with, correlate with, certain subjective states or experiences. That's what we know. Some of us, namely materialists, then infer or speculate or assume that those patterns of electrochemical activity must be the cause of my inner life, of my subjective experience of being, perceiving, feeling, and so on. But we do not know that, that being the so-called hard problem of consciousness. We cannot explain how or why, when you put enough neurons together or enough unconscious switches together, somehow and suddenly it lights up with conscious awareness. We can't explain that. So it's just an inference. It's the labeling of an unknown. So if we stick to what we know, 
All we can say about the human brain is that it is a system that has, in the words of Lee Smolin, internal aspects and external aspects. Let me quote for you a passage uh, from a book by, by Lee, uh, he, a book he has published, if I'm not mistaken, last year. It's called Time Reborn, From the Crisis in Physics to the Future of the Universe. Lee Smolin, by the way, is a mainstream, very well-known, highly regarded physicist from the Perimeter Institute. He wrote, and I quote, Perhaps everything has external and internal aspects. The external properties are those that science can capture and describe through interactions, in terms of relationships. The internal aspect is the intrinsic essence. It is the reality that is not expressible in the language of interactions and relationships. And then he goes on to identify this internal aspect with conscious experience, conscious awareness. He writes, and I quote again, Consciousness, whatever it is, is an aspect of the intrinsic essence of brains. So notice that what he's doing is he's avoiding the statement that brain states cause subjective experience. He's just saying these are two aspects of the system, two sides of one coin. Maybe one is the image of the other. Maybe the brain is what direct experience looks like without necessarily causing direct experience. He seems to leave it open. Um, he's just saying that there are Two points of view to experience. The first person point of view of experience, which is, for instance, my feeling of love. And the second person point of view of the same experience, which would be, for instance, what a neuroscience would see in a brain scanner uh, if I were inside a brain scanner looking at photos of my loved ones. Two perspectives, two points of view, both of them subjective, both of them experiences. The neuroscience scientist experiences images in his brain scanner. These are images he sees, he measures and experiences in his own inner life. Uh, it, they just seem to correlate with my direct experience of feeling love. So the point one of our thought exercise is to drop what we don't know about the brain, namely that there is a causation between brain states and subjective experience, and stick to what we do know, which is there are two aspects to the system, an internal aspect, what it feels like to be me, and an external aspect, what my brain looks like to a neuroscientist inside a brain scanner, or if somebody cracks my skull open and looks at my brain. Now, and that's the second step of our little thought experiment. What is a brain but an arrangement of so-called material particles? Whatever an atom or a sub subatomic particle is, we know that there is such a thing. Let's not get too hung up on, on, on philosophical or ontological interpretations of atoms. Let's just use the word. A brain is a system composed of atoms. The same atoms that compose, say, rocks, stars, moons, and planets. Any other inanimate object, say, a crystal. Crystal can also be composed of carbon atoms, which also exist in my brain under a different arrangement, a different structure, different pattern, so to say. So in principle, we cannot really fundamentally differentiate a living biological brain from a crystal uh, insofar as both are arrangements of the same types of atoms. So unless 
we can determine that conscious experience arises from specific arrangements of atoms, from a specific architecture, a specific structure that is embodied in a brain and is not embodied in in a crystal, for instance, unless we can do that, we must consider the possibility that not only brains, but any material system has an inner aspect as well. That in the same way that there is something it is like to be a brain, there is something it is like to be the entire material universe. Now, as I've just tried to to, to point to uh, a moment ago, uh, we do not know how specific structures of allegedly unconscious matter could give rise uh, to conscious experience. That's the hard problem of consciousness, uh, the second most important unanswered question in science, according to the to a 2005 anniversary edition of, of Science magazine. So we cannot associate consciousness to a specific arrangement of matter insofar as we know today. So we must grant consciousness to be the internal aspect of the universe as a whole. Now, if that's the case, then there is something it is like to be the universe. The universe as a whole has an inner life. And the universe we see, we measure, the planets, moons, stars, galaxies, galaxy clusters, and so on and so forth, that's the image of a sort of cosmic nervous system. In exactly the same way that a human brain is the image of a person's inner life. That nervous system that a human brain consists of is the external aspect, aspect, the second person perspective of somebody's subjective inner life. And since a brain is just an arrangement of material particles like the rest of the universe, what I'm saying is that the universe as a whole is also a nervous system. It is the external aspect, the second person perspective of a cosmic inner life, of a cosmic stream of subjective experiences that we might say, we might call God's dream. God's a very overloaded word, but I think it's appropriate in this context. So when we look out to the stars and galaxies, the hypothesis here is that we are just seeing a segment of God's brain, the external view of God's inner life. As a matter of fact, there has been some computer modeling of the structure of the universe at the largest scales. Uh, It's something that we cannot see directly because we are, of course, within a small segment of the universe, but we can calculate in the computer and we can see how the distribution of galaxies, galaxy clusters, and, and, and the dark matter that connects them all together, how it looks exactly like a brain, like interconnected neurons forming clusters with the synapses connecting them, the patterns are exactly the same. Uh, The New York Times has published a photo comparison, I think in 2006, showing this, neurons on the one hand and the structure of the universe at the largest scales uh, on the other hand, and the images are very similar. And, of course, uh, visual similarities can be very misleading, uh, but there has also been some very detailed mathematical studies about the structure of the universe and the structure of networks and the structure of the brain. Uh, There has been a publication in 2012 at uh, the University of California at San Diego, some research done there, that shows that it's not only a visual illusion. It's not only a visual comparison 
that at the level of uh, the distribution of the structures in the interconnect, uh, the interconnect, uh, the universe at the largest scales does really resemble uh, a nervous system, uh, a brain. That uh, there are unknown laws apparently that leads to this. Uh, scientists are a bit at a loss to explain why this is so. Nothing that we know would require the structure of the universe to be like this. Uh, so they postulate some unknown laws, unknown organizing principles that lead to this. I myself would say that the universe looks like a brain because that's exactly what it is. It is the external aspect of the cosmic inner life of a cosmic intelligence. Now, and that's point three in our little thought experiment. You might ask then, does that mean that an inanimate object like a crystal, like a diamond, like a rock, uh, is also conscious? Does it mean that there is something it is like to be a piece of rock or a wall or a painting? Not necessarily. Um, there is no reason, no more reason to believe that an individual rock is conscious than there is to believe that an individual neuron in your brain has an inner life of its own that there is something it is like to be a separate individual neuron in your brain. Allow me to quote a passage of, uh, of uh, uh, a recent book, a new book I'm, I'm, I'm publishing now, and now means April, May 2015 for you time travelers, uh, called Brief Peaks Beyond, in which I explore this point. Let me quote you this passage for you. If you dream about a tropical holiday location with trees, waterfalls, and singing birds, all those images will correlate with particular measurable patterns of activated neurons in your head. Theoretically, a neuroscientist could identify different groups of neurons in your brain and say, group A correlates with a tree, group B correlates with a waterfall, group C correlates with a singing bird, and so on and so forth. However, based on your direct experience of what it feels like to imagine this scenario, this tropical holiday scenario. Is there anything it is like to be group A in isolation? Is there anything it is like to be group C in and of itself? Or is there only something it is like to be the whole daydreaming you, your whole brain, imagining trees, waterfalls and birds as component parts of an integrated scenario? Do you experience multiple separate streams of imagination one for trees, another for waterfalls, another for birds, or only one stream wherein trees, waterfalls, and birds are all together. Do you see the point? Unless there is dissociation, there is nothing it is like to be separate groups of neurons in a person's brain. We can only speak of a holistic stream of imagination of the person as a whole. For exactly the same reason that there is nothing it is like to be an isolated group of neurons in a person's brain, there is nothing it is like to be an inanimate object, end quote. So the point I'm trying to make here is that we shouldn't confuse this idea that the universe as a whole is a nervous system of a cosmic mind with the notion that in philosophy is called panpsychism, the notion that there is something it is like to be a table, a chair, a rock, or a moon, that a table also has inner experience the way we have. No, I think moons, rocks, tables, and chairs, and the entire inanimate 
aspect of the universe. These are just images of one integrated nervous system that is having one integrated stream of conscious experiences. God's dream, if you will. Um, I think when we look out to the empirical world, what we see is God's brain. And it doesn't look like a brain because we are looking in our immediate surroundings at a very, very tiny part of it. It is as if you were a nanometer-sized person sitting on one synapse in the brain, looking at an ion channel open and releasing neurotransmitters. You would see just isolated clumps of matter, isolated structures floating around, like we see isolated rocks tumbling down mountains, or isolated moons going around planets and planets going around stars. It would look nothing like an interconnected, integrated, networked nervous system, because we are looking at a very, very, very zoomed in, very, very tiny part of it. And only if you would step out and zoom out considerably would you see that this is all actually interconnected like a nervous system. But for the same reason that there is nothing it is like to be an individual synapse, an individual ion channel, or an individual molecule of a neurotransmitter in your brain, there is only something it is like to be you having one integrated holistic inner life. For that same reason, there is nothing it's like to be a rock. There is only something it is like to be God or mind at large or that cosmic consciousness that is having the dream whose external aspect is the universe, is the whole of empirical reality. I think creation, the universe, is merely this, the external aspect of God's creative, mental, conscious activity. All right, so this has been point three. Now point four of our little thought experiment. You may now be wondering, well, if there is only this one integrated stream of conscious experience, this cosmic dream, God's dream that you, you've, you've described, how come I seem to have my own inner life? Right? You seem to have a very localized inner life. It, it's not divine, apparently. It doesn't have the cosmic scale of, of what you would suppose God's dream to feel like. Moreover, it's separate from mine. I have my inner life and I don't have access to yours. They don't seem to be connected. I don't know how you're feeling right now, what you're perceiving. I have no access to your inner life and you have no access to mine. How could this be if the whole universe is just the outside image of one integrated holistic stream of conscious experience? My hypothesis here is the following. Have you ever heard of people with dissociative identity disorder? This is just the new name for what in the early days was called uh, multiple personality disorder. These are people who seem to have different centers of consciousness with separate, non-overlapping inner lives. They have multiple identities, each with his or her own inner life. And often these identities don't even know of the other uh, identities or alters, as they are called in psychology. Each separated, separate personality is an alter of one psyche. Um, this reflects a dissociative process in what should have been an integrated inner life, an integrated stream of consciousness belonging to one person. That integrated stream seems to partition, dissociate into multiple separate streams, which become disconnected because they become amnesic of each other. There is a kind of forgetfulness of the inner life of the other alters. 
So each altar becomes dissociated into its own little separate stream and amnesic of the stream of the other altars, the, the subjective stream, the experiences of the other altars. This is very easy to see if we flip this around, if I invert the argument. Think about it this way. Suppose you were entirely conscious of my whole inner life. You could perceive everything I perceive. You could feel everything I feel. Now imagine that I too would be conscious of your entire inner life. That I could perceive everything you perceive. That I could feel everything you feel. In that case, you and I would be effectively the same being. The same conscious entity. We would have one integrated, holistic stream of conscious experience. And we would both identify with it to the point that we would be one. There would be no difference between us. Right? Why is that not so? Because I do not have access to your inner life. In a sense, it is as if I forgot I became amnesic of your inner life and you of mine. It is this forgetfulness, this obfuscation of each other's inner life that leads to a dissociation. I am dissociated from you, therefore I identify myself as a separate conscious entity than you. So what I'm postulating is that God has dissociative identity disorder, multiple personality disorder, and that biology, metabolism, life, is merely the image, the external aspect of a dissociative process in God's mind. To see biology in the empirical world, in a sense, if you follow the metaphor, would be entirely equivalent to diagnosing an aneurysm in a brain by looking at a brain scan. By taking an MRI picture of a brain or by cracking a skull open and looking at the brain and de detecting an aneurysm. Metabolism, life, biology, conscious beings, living beings are the image in the scan of God's brain that we call the material universe of dissociative processes that correlate from the subjective perspective, from the inner aspect perspective or, or, or the first person perspective, correlates with amnesia, with a separation, a breaking off of what would be one stream of consciousness into multiple ones. That, in my view, is the reason why we feel like we are separate entities. We have become amnesic of the rest of the conscious stream of experiences in God's brain, the moment we dissociate it from it. And it is this dissociation that leads to this first and second person perspective duality. If there were no dissociation in God's mind, in other words, if there were no biology, if there were no metabolism, no life in the universe, there would be only one dream, one entity. But because there is this dissociation, the inner life of the rest of the universe becomes accessible to me as a dissociated altar only through a second-person perspective. And that is the origin of what we call sense perceptions. That is the origin of what we call the external world. The external world is just what the inner life of God looks like from our perspective as a dissociated altar. Other people are the image of other dissociated altars in the stream of God's consciousness. A biological body in the form of human being is just 
what it looks like, in the same way that an aneurysm or a brain tumor looks like something in an MRI scan or a PET scan. And when I make this metaphor, I don't mean to imply that life is some kind of disease. Uh, the metaphor breaks at this point, so, so bear with me. There are limitations to, to, to the metaphor. So this is my point, you see. I think the universe, the inanimate universe, is just the external aspect, the image of God's dream, in the same way that the brain is the image of a person's inner life, in exactly the same way. And a brain and the body of another person is simply the image of a dissociative process in that one, in that one nervous system, in that one universal cosmic nervous system. And so are other living creatures. And you could even imagine many degrees of dissociation. You could say that a primate is a highly, highly dissociated segment uh, uh, of God's mind. And that a plant is a less dissociated one. It's the beginning of the process of dissociation. There are intimations of a separation coming, but it isn't complete. You could imagine that bacterial life, funguses, for instance, are also the early stages, the, the rehearsal for that more complete dissociation uh, that, that comes later. And that uh, we are basically witnessing God's nervous system dissociating as we witness uh, the ebb and flow and the evolution of life on this planet and wherever else uh, we might find uh, life in the universe. So this has been point four in our little thought experiment. Now, point five, which doesn't introduce any new, new element, but just wraps it up and, and makes the implications clear. Notice the following. If dissociation is a merely mental process, totally subjective process, that leads to the emergence of this first and second person perspectives of experience, then we do not need to postulate a universe fundamentally outside consciousness to explain empirical facts. Uh, the world that apparently is outside my consciousness, the external world, is simply the second person perspective, the external aspect, the outside image of fundamentally subjective processes in God's mind, or in other people's or in other living beings' minds as dissociated alters of God's mind. And what I consider my own inner life, my inner stream of experiences and feelings and emotions and so on, that's just my first-person direct experience of certain aspects of the flow of consciousness, the universal flow of consciousness, that happen to be dissociated and localized in my own alter. It is alter formation that leads to this duality of points of view, but not to a duality of fundamental nature. After all, and bear with me, the second person perspective of an experience, like when I watch somebody's brain while this person is having an experience, that second person perspective is also an experience, an experience of alters. The entire empirical world is an experience of alters. You have to have an alter, a dissociated element of God's mind, to witness the universe from a second-person perspective. But that witnessing is an experience too. Another person's brain is something I can see, I can measure. Hypothetically, I could touch, even smell. It's just a material object like, like any other, 
that appears to me in the form of my five sensory modalities. What I can see, what I can smell, what I can hear, what I can touch, uh, what I can taste. These are all experiences. There is nothing to any brain, or there, there can't ever be anything to any brain, that isn't an experience in some alters localized stream of, of consciousness. Do you see what I mean? So, the idea of a cosmic mind have dissociative identity disorder and forming alters, this single idea explains all empirical reality without the need to go into the abstraction of a world outside consciousness, without the need to infer that somehow, magically, specific arrangements of matter generate consciousness in the first place. All those abstractions, all those inflationary theoretical entities and postulates become unnecessary, completely unnecessary to make sense of things. Uh, alternatively, we can develop a view of the world wherein we are basically living within God's brain and we are just dissociated authors within God's stream of conscious experiences. And birth is the beginning of a dissociative process that we come to identify ourselves with, maybe mistakenly, just like a specific personality in a person with dissociative personality disorder uh, mistakenly believes itself to be separate from the other alters, from the other personalities. And death is a process, or at least the external aspect, the outside image, the second person perspective of a process of reintegration of what was my personal stream of experiences, my dissociated stream of experiences, getting integrated back into the cosmic global stream of experiences uh, in God's mind, uh, so to say. Um, how that views from a first-person perspective, it's very difficult to say. Perhaps psychedelic trances give us some intuition about what it feels like to experience the whole world, the whole earth and the universe, not from a second-person perspective, but from a first-person perspective. It would be like entering somebody's brain. It would be like a neuroscientist that spent hours looking at somebody's brain scan, suddenly becoming that person and experiencing all that from within. So if the universe is God's brain and we are observing it from outside as a dissociated altar, when we die, maybe we merge back into it and we begin to experience it from within. We begin to experience what it is like to be planet Earth, what it is like to be the solar system, what it's like to be the whole universe with its galaxies and galaxy clusters and maybe whatever number of, of extra dimensions there might be. Maybe we have a, a very small, tiny, infinitesimal glimpse of that uh, during psychedelic trances, maybe even during uh, near-death experiences. But fundamentally then, death could be reinterpreted as a process of psychological resociation, of a merging back of a localized, uh, a dissociated stream of experiences back into the whole, back into the broader stream. Now, of course, the question this all raises is um, why on earth did materialism become and, and survives as the mainstream worldview in our culture? And, and that already for at least a couple of hundred years uh, since the Enlightenment, uh, maybe. Uh, 
why is that? You see, it's a worldview that is inflationary, highly metaphysical and abstract, and doesn't explain even the most primary aspect of existence, which is consciousness itself, and admittedly so. Uh, This is not in contention. Materialism cannot explain consciousness today and never will, in my view. How come a precarious worldview like that has come to dominate and have such a strong grip, not only in Western culture, but now across the world, even in the East? And I know that from first-hand experience. Um, I have many hypotheses about it. And uh, I think the main strength of materialism is not that it is a good philosophical position, a good ontological position. I think its main strength is the fact that it is so synergistic with our economic system and the current power structures. You see, a worldview, an ontology, largely determines the value system of a society. It determines what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, uh, what life should be about, what's meaningful, what's meaningless. Uh, It determines what's considered success and failure. So there is tremendous cultural pressure from anyone taking part in our society to conform to that value system. And the moment materialism is the force behind the determination of the value system, it also determines our behavior. And if that is then synergistic with existing or even emerging power structures and with the economy, which is, again, whether we like it or not, it's a tool of uh, the power structures. If it is synergistic with that, it has the tendency to remain. I'm not necessarily postulating that there is a conspiracy here. A conspiracy evokes a more or less cartoonish view of a globally integrated cabal that is in control, that is having secret meetings and issuing orders that are spread down the pyramid of power through secret channels, and and everybody's involved and everybody's complying with that. Everybody's involved except us. Everybody in any position of any power is involved except us. I don't think that is the case. I don't think that is possible uh, to begin with, and I've been around in my professional life, and I have seen no no reason to believe that. Uh, As our old friend Terence McKenna used to say, I also think nobody is in control. Um, So how does this power structure then effectively remains what it is? It keeps on calling the shots and, and, and reinforcing the value system in a sort of symbiotic relationship. Let me introduce to you another word. It's, it's not a, a conspiracy, but it's stigmergy. It's a, it's a complicated word. Let me explain you where this word uh, comes from. It comes from the study of insects like ants, uh, which, which do not have uh, coordinated control. Ants do not have bosses and power structures that pass on orders. Uh, and yet they manifest globally coordinated behavior, highly complex behavior. As a matter of fact, I used to work with artificial intelligence uh, systems. That's one of my uh, academic backgrounds. And I remember that we tried to emulate the behavior and the skills of ant colonies to solve highly complex uh, engineering problems. So complex is their behavior. 
that we try to emulate it to solve engineering problems. How does that complex coordinated behavior emerge? How can ants practice agriculture, architecture, engineering, sophisticated defense systems without any cabal, without any boss, without any central coordination and the passing of secret orders? How does that work? It works through stigmergy. And stigmergy happens when an individual agent, through his or her behavior, leaves an imprint in the environment, a cue that an other agent can perceive and which calibrates the behavior of this other agent, modifying this other agent's behavior, which in turn leaves some cues or footprints in the environment, which again calibrates the behavior of other agents and so on and so forth until some seemingly coordinated global pattern emerges from the bottom. So there is an emergence from the ground up of coordinated behavior, not from the top down. And I think materialism is maintained through stigmergy. It is the individual behavior of people based on our culture's value system that leads to its survival and its reinforcement. For instance, a scientist, uh, a neuroscientist doing research that is beginning, for instance, to show results that contradict materialism, will, for the sake of his or her career, his income, his ability to feed his family, or his ego-driven desires uh, to, to get a promotion or to become famous, will likely adapt uh, the directions of his research in the search for results that will ultimately reinforce materialism. The questions he will ask himself, his methods, his hypothesis, will be derived from uh, the value system, the world view of materialism, and it will tend to reinforce it. Avenues that could refute it will be left alone. Avenues that have the promise to reinforce it will be pursued for the sake of, uh, of uh, personal success or personal values. And the behavior of this scientist will imprint on other scientists who will be observing what he is doing and act accordingly, especially if this scientist gets promoted and finds himself in the position of deciding where grants go and where resources go that will leave an imprint on the environment that other people will perceive and will adjust their behavior accordingly so they also achieve some degree of personal success and personal satisfaction or even uh, mere survival. I think this happens in science. This may happen in the corporate world. This happens in the media. It is astonishing how easy it is for the media to commit mistakes when reporting on scientific results so long as those mistakes seem to reinforce materialism. It's very easy to err on the side of the reigning worldview. But if the conclusion they are reporting, reporting would contradict the reigning worldview, they would look twice, three times, four times, and maybe not publish the results at all for fear that they would be wrong. So they will calibrate their editorial policies, even unconsciously, seemingly unconsciously, uh, along uh, the guidelines of the stigmergy of materialism for fear of ridicule, for fear of being wrong. And of course, the whole thing self-reinforces, and we are now in a, in a cultural era in our civilization where materialism, as I said in the beginning, has become synonym with reason and rationality themselves, which is completely absurd. Um, I think this has emerged out of this materialist stigmergy that is so prevalent uh, in society today.
Now you might ask, why does any of this matter, right? Why is it important whether materialism is correct, whether this view that all reality unfolds in some kind of cosmic consciousness is correct? What are the practical differences? What does it matter at the end of the day? Well, the differences are enormous and they can be theoretical on the one hand and it can be very pragmatic on the other hand as well. I explore this at length uh, in, in the book, but I wanted to give you a, just a, a brief overview. To begin with, our ideas about what death means are entirely de determined by our worldview. If materialism is correct, when you die, you're dead. It's the end of it. It's the end of your inner life, of your conscious experience, of the feeling that you have when you think, I am, that would disappear. Uh, you'll be gone for good, and nothing will ever matter to you anymore. What are the implications of this? Well, on the one hand, it gives you an easy way out. Right? You're, you know for sure, if you believe in materialism, that all of your problems and your suffering will inevitably come to an end one day. That's very comforting and probably lies... Uh, at the root, at the inception of materialism as an attractive worldview. But it also means that uh, the only meaning there can be in life is to consume. Because if matter is the only thing that endures, that persists, and life always comes to an end, and is so evanescent and short-lived, then the only conceivable meaning for existence is to accumulate matter in the form of material goods. And that, of course, calibrates your whole behavior in society and may lead to a lot of death anxiety because it's intrinsic to being alive uh, that you fear for your own end. Now, if the worldview of our culture weren't materialism, but were the one I, I tried to elucidate uh, earlier in this talk, the implications are completely different. Death would basically mean that your dissociation will end, that you will remember a whole bunch of things that you've become forgetful about, that your amnesia will end, that you will experience the universe, not anymore from a second-person perspective, but from a first-person perspective, that you will experience what it is to be stars and galaxies and galaxy clusters and the planet Earth itself. Death becomes then a promising uh, um, event, a natural promising event uh, in the natural course uh, of existence. It becomes something that uh, we may want to spend parts of our lives to prepare for, to understand and not to be caught in a panic, not to be caught in surprise uh, with the intensity of the transition. It would change our values, it would change our behaviors. We wouldn't spend our lives anymore just trying to buy things. Um, we wouldn't treat the earth as a resource because after all, if the earth goes to hell a hundred years from now, I won't be here to witness it anyway, so what do I care, right? Another implication has to do with uh, our ideas of health and health care. You see, under materialism, your body is just a machine. It's an unconscious mechanism in which a few parts come together to magically generate consciousness inside your brain. Uh, but beyond that, it's just an unconscious mechanism. And because of that, uh, doctors recently, in, in the past few decades, they have become akin to car mechanics. They are mechanics that try to fix the mechanism, and they don't have an integral view uh, of health. 
Now, if the worldview I posited in this talk is correct, then what is the body? The body is not a mechanism, uh, but is merely the external aspect, the outside image of psychic conscious processes. Some of these processes are within your self-reflective awareness, your ordinary stream of consciousness. Others are eclipsed, they're obfuscated, they correspond to the so-called subconscious or the personal, quote, unconscious. I don't believe in the unconscious. I think it's just obfuscated consciousness, but I'll stick to the word uh, to avoid confusion because it's easier. If the body is the image of your subconscious mental processes, then it opens an entirely new avenue of health care through psychological intervention. Theoretically, if this view is correct, one could treat all diseases through talk therapy, through rituals that will leave imprints in the subconscious mind, through all kinds of methods for suggestion, some of which could even be considered unethical in, according to our society's current uh, uh, value system, because they would imply some form of deception. It's never a deception if it works. I'm talking here about things like the placebo effect. If it works, it, it, really, it really isn't a deception, uh, but it may come across uh, as such. But it would open an entirely new avenue of treatment. And there are more implications, not only these two broad uh, umbrella implications I just uh, talked about, but uh, for instance, uh, if, if all reality actually unfolds within one cosmic nervous system, within one mind with dissociated elements, that then opens the door for psi phenomena like uh, telepathy, um, like uh, precognition, because after all, all of this is unfolding within one mind. Minds are not just epiphenomena of brains fundamentally disconnected from each other, but they are dissociated aspects of something that is fundamentally interconnected uh, on through invisible layers, if you, if you will. It opens the door for a variety of phenomena that uh, science today discards rather a priori. There have been some brief, modest looks from a scientific standpoint at psi phenomena, but uh, not anywhere near the critical mass that would be necessary to really understand it. And moreover, the research that has been done largely uh, is largely based on assumptions that basically preclude psi phenomena from happening when they are being studied. If you're studying the mind of an individual uh, that's driven by a stream of emotions and affections that you can't really control under laboratory conditions, uh, understanding the world through this other perspective would allow us to reinterpret the whole thing and maybe come up with methods that would allow us to do more efficient, effective psi research, giving the phenomena a chance to actually happen while it's being studied. And even more implications. I mean, uh, look at our psychiatric system today and, and look at the way we look upon our own emotions. We Materialists will say that even... Our strongest emotions, like uh, love and hate, they are just the result of, uh, of chemicals uh, suffusing our brains, suffusing our bodies. Nothing really necessary, just the side effect of, of chemistry. Now, if my view is correct, then chemistry is just the external aspect, the second-person perspective, the outside image of a fundamentally effective, subjective process 
that really exists and is not just a side effect of something else. Our love, uh, our affections are real. They are fundamental. They are an integral part of existence, of the fabric of existence. They cannot be dismissed as, as epiphenomena, as side effects. Uh, they have to be taken as primary. If you interpret life in this way, how would that affect your relationships? How would that affect your own relationship with your inner life, with your feelings? How would that affect the way we treat each other? How would that affect the way psychiatry handles patients, patients with with schizophrenia, patients with depression? Would we look upon a depressed human being just as a malfunctioning biological robot that should be fixed through chemical intervention? Or would we look upon that human being as a dissociated altar of a cosmic mind that is going through a meaningful learning experience and whose inner life should be respected and validated as such and not just fixed mechanically? Um, everything would change. So it is crucially important that we question our mainstream worldview of materialism critically, honestly, in a way that is uh, that, that, that complies with logic and, and which is empirically honest, honest uh, to our observations of the world and honest to our observations of ourselves, that we don't miss our steps of abstraction and take them for, for granted, take them as, as, as self-evident. If we are self-critical and critical to, towards the worldview of the culture, we will change our worldview. We will go to a better place, and, 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 and that better worldview will change our value systems, will change the way we relate to each other, will change our economic system, will change the power structures, uh, we change how we live our lives and our experience of life. And there cannot be anything more important than that uh, at the current uh, historical juncture, uh, in my view. So the only question left, which you might ask yourself now, is um, what is there for us to do? How do we enable this transition? How do we enable this improvement? How can we participate in this? I thought a lot about this, and I came to the conclusion that it's not so much about what to do, but about what not to do, about what to stop doing. Um, this, this idea that everything that has any meaning comes out of action, comes out of doing, 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 that's also a value. Uh, an element of the current value system of our culture that we should also be critical about. Sometimes our problems arise from what we do. So, for instance, if I'm hammering myself in the head, if I'm knocking my head off with a hammer, the right course of action is not to get myself a helmet, but to just stop the hammering. So here is my list of five simple things that if we could stop doing today, we would have a much better world tomorrow. And again, this is all elaborated better uh, in the book uh, Brief Peaks Beyond. So number one, let us stop compulsively stupefying ourselves. If you look at how most people live their lives, they're constantly looking for distractions. They're constantly looking for something to take their attention outside of themselves, outside of their inner lives and distract them and numb them. We do that through idiotic 
television shows. We do that through fanatic rooting for sports teams, through alcohol, through so-called retail therapy, the idea that you feel better if you just go shopping, if you just go consuming and buying all kinds of things you don't need and which don't really enrich your life. We do that through hollow social networking, where we don't really develop any deep relationship with anyone. We just try to manage and project an image through social media. Uh, we distract ourselves, ourselves through compulsive casual dating. There's a, 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 a whole myriad of things we do to take our attention out of ourselves, out of our inner lives, because we don't want to confront the deepest questions that our subconscious mind is constantly asking. Who am I? Why am I here in this world? What am I supposed to do? What are my pains? What are my fears? What are my angers? My, my, my anxieties? And, and how do I reconcile them with myself? These are the deepest questions that we are all busy uh, avoiding. And I think that there is no way we can find the path back to meaning in our lives, to make our lives really meaningful, unless we confront these questions, these subconscious questions that are very hard to confront, that are often very painful to acknowledge and integrate. But if we don't, if we don't confront them, if we don't integrate them, how can we ever find true meaning uh, in our lives? We will live a superficial life of distractions. And then in our deathbeds, we'll finally get around to asking ourselves, why was I here to begin with? And then it's too late. The second thing is, let us stop believing so readily. We tend to believe things so easily when it's broadcast by the mainstream media. I mean, I'm not even talking about the pathological beliefs that you find in the fringes of the culture, religious fundamentalism and some some new age stuff that you see around that is frankly uh, absurd. I'm talking about belief in the mainstream worldview of materialism, which is ridiculous in, 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 in many in many ways. Uh, but we be, we believe so readily in it because it is the mainstream. Because we will not be ridiculed by believing in it. Because everybody is on the same boat and everybody is going to sink together uh, with it. If we are more critical, and if we just stop believing so readily, a lot can change. And you see. To stop believing doesn't mean to become cynical. Cynical is a disguised form of belief. It's a very strong commitment to the impossibility of certain things, even uh, in the absence of any evidence to believe in that impossibility. That's cynicism. What I'm talking about is what uh, has come to be called negative capability. It's an attitude of openness to the possibility of many things, but without being committed to its truth or to its impossibility. It's to live with openness, with receptivity. Uh, there's a fantastic quote by poet John Keats, English poet uh, John Keats, where he talked about negative capability. Let me, let me read it for you. He said, um, At once it struck me what quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, in which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean negative capability. That is, when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. End quote. 
if we would all leave more with this negative capability, uh, I think a lot of negative aspects of our civilization could be alleviated, uh, I believe. Because there is, if we are really honest, there is so little in the form of reliable facts and conclusions available out there that our only honest option is to live uh, in that openness, in that receptivity for the many possibilities uh, of existence. Number three, let us stop acting so much. And you see, if we are really honest to ourselves, we are acting all the time. We are always managing our image. We are always trying to project what Jung, Jung called the persona, manage the way other people look upon us, perceive us, uh, see us, because we want to put out that image of strength. We want to be seen as successful, intelligent, attractive, uh, and whatnot. While deep inside, and let's be honest, we are all living with suffering. We all have anxieties. We all have insecurities, uncertainties, regrets, uh, anger, and whatnot. We are all living with that. It's an enormous part of everybody's life because it's part of the human condition. But we hide that and we try to project this image of harmony and strength and security uh, and, and attractiveness. What is the net effect of this? Are we reducing any suffering? By, by anyone in the world? Of course not. In fact, we are reinforcing the suffering. We are adding insult to injury because since everybody is projecting this image of strength, every single person thinks that he or she is alone in the suffering, is alone in the insecurities, in the anxieties, the fears, the terrors. We think we are alone in that, that the rest of the world is doing just fine and we are the only miserable souls around, or at least one of the few, which is an illusion. We are all on the same boat. We are all weak, uh, uh, suffering human beings. It would be much better if we stopped trying to conceal that and just have the courage to present ourselves to the world the way we really are, because that's the only way to create authentic community, help each other out, and reduce our, our inherent suffering. Number four, and this will be misinterpreted at first, but I will explain it better. Let us stop eating so much meat. And I don't mean that for the usual health reasons. I mean, it may be healthier to, to, to be vegetarian indeed, but that's not the reason I'm saying this. I'm saying this for the following reason. The moment you treat animals as a product as a commodity, which is the way they are treated today for food, uh, you cannot avoid that the intrinsic, uh, intrinsic human tendencies and intrinsic tendencies in, in the economic system, in the industrial system, will kick in, and these animals will be treated under savage conditions. They will have horrible lives, and they will be killed in similar ways. And and since Animals are just dissociated alters in the broader stream of mind at large, like any living being. We are basically injecting enormous, inconceivable amounts of suffering into our own subconscious minds, into, into the cosmic mind of which we are all parts. That cannot do us any good at a subconscious level. What are we really doing to ourselves when we carry out an orgy of torture and killing towards millions of uh, higher animals every week 
on the account of meeting a, a, a market consumer demand. And how much of that could we reduce if we simply stopped eating so much meat, perhaps not eliminate meat completely from our diet. It's part of nature that animals eat each other, but at the industrial scale, we carry it out. This is an abnormality with, uh, I believe, uh, uh, unimaginable consequences for the health of our psychic lives at the deepest levels. And finally, number five, my last modest suggestion for what we could stop doing to improve the world Let us stop buying so much unnecessary stuff. Our drive to consume is motivated by the value system of materialism, which basically entails, if you think about it, that there can only be one meaning in life, that being to accumulate material goods and have the experiences they enable while you can, because after that, you'll be dead anyway and nothing will matter. Um, And that leads to the reinforcement of the current power structures of the current economic system with all the pathological consequences uh, that we know. If we would just change our patterns of consumption so as to avoid consumerism, to avoid this insane rush towards unnecessary material goods and focusing instead uh, on our inner lives, on things like art, poetry, interacting with nature, uh, making our subconscious mind self-reflective, bringing it to awareness, engaging deep, meaningful relationships with other human beings, uh, improving our understanding, expressing our feelings, uh, uh, because what other meaning that can really be in life but to improve our understanding of what's going on and express uh, whatever it is that we are. If we would change our patterns of consumption along these lines, uh, we would inevitably undermine the pathological power structures that are in place today, undermine the pathological system that is in place today, and force an adjustment in a positive direction. And notice that unlike street revolutions, uh, a change in our patterns of consumption would be impossible to repress. Of course, uh, the media is out there really trying to stimulate current patterns of, of consumption. Uh, but if we decide to change them, that decision cannot be repressed. Nobody can throw you in jail because you're not buying what they want you to buy. Um And it would have an enormous impact on the current state of affairs, more, I believe, than any street revolution uh, could ever achieve. And it would be peaceful and quiet. It wouldn't wouldn't lead to to death. It wouldn't lead to war. Uh, It could lead to difficult times because any change in the economic system would dislodge it from the current equilibrium point and bring it to, to a point of confusion to a a lack of balance, and that could be very painful, maybe for a while, Um, but it would eventually lead to a better situation. And and if we don't do that, what's the alternative? Uh, We have an economic system that is entirely based on growth, while the planet is not growing, while the ecosystem is not growing. How much more can we grow before we spoil the whole thing and, 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 and arrive at a completely unsustainable situation? And if our consciousness is never going to end, uh, if we are going to be around in one or another form, ad infinitum, uh, we are the ones that are going to suffer the consequences of this, not 
the next generations. Anyway, this is what I wanted to share with you today, starting from a different way of looking at the world, looking at existence, interpreting the facts of reality, uh, looking at the implications of that, and looking at possible ways in which we could help a healthy change in our worldview, uh, in the way we relate to ourselves, to the world, and to the universe at large. I hope you enjoyed it. Take care. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends.